this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track. But there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. Takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. So who's in the best position to leverage what you've built? Who are the strategic acquirers in your industry that can take advantage of your assets and make them worth more in their hands than they are in your hands? That's the ultimate definition of a strategic acquirer. What you've built is worth more to them than it is to you, which is why they typically pay generally a higher multiple than a financial buyer, an individual investor. And so really giving some deep thought to who the strategic acquirers are for your business makes a whole lot of sense. It's a conversation Stephen Smith had with his advisor where he was thinking through who would make the most sense to buy his company, Word South. They built it up to 30 employees and he realized there was another organization and another geographic market that had a lot to gain by buying his business. Here to tell you the story is Stephen Smith. Stephen Smith, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, great to be here, John. Happy to be on the show. Tell me about Word South. What do you guys do? We are, uh, we're very niche. We work with uh, rural utilities, that's electric cooperatives, uh, you know, small town providers, uh, broadband companies, you know, telecommunications companies, and primarily those uh, serving uh, rural America. And, but what do you do for them? We help them, uh, we help them do three, three things. We come alongside them and become part of their mission. We help them tell their story. We help them market their services and we help them train their people. And uh, we're, communications company, you know, traditional top agency slash publishing company. So we do a lot of magazine work, uh, traditional publishing like that. But in, uh, in addition to that, we do a lot of digital work, social media, web design, things of that nature, just, just helping them Fantastic. tell their story. Okay. So a marketing services agency with a specialization in working with these utility companies. How did you pick that niche? What was the, what's the backstory there? Well, uh, we started the company, um, my wife and I, uh, almost 25 years ago, as, as really a, a continuation of some freelance work that I was doing. I was in the newspaper business and uh, was doing some freelance work on the side for a utility and, uh, in, in our region here in North Alabama. And, um, you know, we quickly saw that that was a need in a lot of areas. And over the years, we have, you know, we, we've done other things besides uh, that niche. Uh, we've dabbled in, you know, government and healthcare, and you know, lots of you know, just basic small business. So we've we've done a lot of things, but over time, like a lot of businesses, we, you know, we we, we found out who we were, uh, what our strengths were, and uh, 
you know, really, really focused on that. 25 years working with your wife. I think I lasted about three weeks working with my wife. She worked <laughs> in the company for about three weeks and it was like a disaster. I'm like, it's either the company or our marriage. <laughs> What's the secret to working with your wife? How does that work? Uh, well, uh, you would, uh, you'd probably have to ask her what the, the secret is putting up with me. Uh, I got the best end of the deal. I can tell you that, Todd. Uh, you've learned to answer that question very diplomatically. <laughs> you sound like a politician. <laughs> uh, well, we work very well together and we compliment one another. You know, I'm the, uh, I'm the writer and I'm the person out front, the deal maker. And uh, she's a designer and she's in the background making sure that I don't mess up. So we, uh, it's a good partnership. That's awesome. That's awesome. So what was the, the, the kind of economic model that you used? I mean, a lot of marketing agencies bill like by the hour um, or by the project. How did you kind of bill for your services? On, on the publishing side of things, we, uh, we, we, we pursue contracts that are sort of all encompassing for that publication and the, the services that go along with that. On the, uh, the, the marketing side of things, those non-publication projects that are more traditional agency things. We have, uh, we've worked with those hourly models, but over the years, we've really tried to move away from that and move more toward a comprehensive contract. Instead of selling a bucket of hours, trying to focus on being that strategic partner for the company and to, uh, you know, bring the services that they need based on a, you know, the strategy we developed, the statement of work that comes from that. And, uh, and then being their partner more on a, uh, not an hourly basis, but a, but, but a contract basis. Got it. And, and so as you're building this company, is the thought of selling in your mind at all? Like when did that trigger for you? Uh, I guess several years ago um, that, uh, that seed was planted when um, uh, I mentioned I was in the newspaper business and my former publisher uh, they they sold their company, and I saw uh, really what that did for them in, in their lives, and uh, how they were able to uh, cash in the sweat equity, if you will, uh, and then do other things that interested them. And I certainly saw how hard they worked with uh, you know being small business owners. And what, did you see anything that made you envious? Is probably too negative a word, but that made you aspire to do the same? Like, was it a car that they drove, a country club that they joined, uh, another business that they started? Like, what did they do that made you think, man, I, I kind of like to do that one day? Uh, it, was, um, it, it was certainly nothing um, materialistic necessarily. It was just more of a, more of a lifestyle change uh, for them. Like what? And, like what, um, how did you, what's, what was the lifestyle change that you saw that you wanted? Um, I guess one of the biggest things is they slowed down. Um, they stopped working as hard and, and uh, took some time off and was able to, uh, you know, they ended up doing some other things, um, get, getting into other projects and, you know, that sort of thing. But so um, did you start to think, well, what Woodward South actually be worth? Like, did you start to kind of think about the value of the company? Oh, yes. Over over the years we've uh, you know we've we've certainly looked at that and and did a did a lot of, of uh, research over the years of just you know always being in the you know reading the magazines reading the books uh, listening to the podcast just 
immersing ourselves in. Uh, and what did you start to come to think that the company might be worth? Like, did you have a, was there a valuation sort of like a multiple that you were starting to think, ah, oh, maybe we could get X. Like what was, what was the, the, the methodology you were, you were using to try to put a value on the company? Well, um, you know, really for years, I was just looking at the different models that people use to, uh, to, to, you know, assign a valuation and, uh, ultimately coming to the conclusion that, you know, a company is worth whatever a buyer is willing to pay for it. And the methodology that you get there is going to, de- going to depend on the situation and the, and the buyer and the circumstances. And as we became very serious about it, uh, about looking for a, a buyer over the past, say, five years, we were, um, you know, we were looking more closely at those models and what might work for us. But again, we knew that that was going to be dependent on the, the folks that we ended up partnering with. Yeah. And did you get a sense of what would the standard multiple for a company like yours? Uh, we, we did. We had, um, we had some ideas in terms of multiples of revenue and then, you know, multiples of EBITDA. And what, what's, what was the range? Um, the one that I tended to use kind of as a, you know, rule of thumb was uh, um, maybe a, a one to one and a half times um, revenue uh, for a, a services company like ours that was so very niche and was so, uh, um, you know, centered, centered in this part of the country and, uh, you know, lots of different factors. I felt like, you know, between a one and two might be a starting point for uh, a conversation. Got it. Got it. And, and so how big did you get this company before, you decided to sell Like, Did you like what, any proxy, like number of employees, revenue, whatever, whatever you're comfortable sharing. Yeah, we were, um, we were a seven figure company. Um, we had grown to about 30 employees and that's a mix of uh, part-time and full-time um, and some contract thrown in there. You know, um, we were, uh, and, you know, to, to the point we had employees scattered across, um, you know, five or six states and serving clients in, in several other states, which, uh, you know, as a, uh, as a side road here, I'll say that uh, moving to a distributed workforce over the past few years really served us well mm. when uh, the pandemic uh, hit, hit the country. We yeah, were you were already doing it. You were way ahead of the curve on that. Yeah, we really were. You know, we talked before we hit record about a pretty significant life event for you back in, I think it was 2015, which mm-hmm. changed a lot for you. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'll, I'll get into that. Um, in 2014, I got a diagnosis with a, with a rare disease called uh, myasthenia gravis. Uh, not a lot of people have heard of that. It's a neuro, neuromuscular um, condition. And... Um, it took a year to get a diagnosis. When we finally did, there was uh, um, there was a surgery that they recommended. The thymus gland has to come out, and we found the, there was a tumor on it, so it really needed to happen, you know. And so everything went well till a few weeks after that surgery in, in February of 2015. I went into the hospital, uh, back in the hospital with complications, and went into what they call a myasthenic crisis. Uh, they said, you, you may be in the hospital a week while we do this uh, treatment. And um, I thought, oh, gosh, I have to get back to work. I can't be in the hospital for a week. And that week turned into seven. 
So I was in hospital for seven weeks, most of that in ICU. And uh, there came a point uh, during that time that my wife and I said, uh, you know, we, we don't know how long this is going to happen and uh, how long this is going to be going on. And, uh, you know, what, what after this looks like when I do get out of the hospital and, uh, and really didn't realize just how sick I was. So we, we called some of our folks in um, down to the hospital in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. And um, we had a conversation with them and said, we're going to, uh, we're going to make some uh, assignments here. We're going to hand out some new titles. We're going to delegate some responsibilities. And while we had, we had certainly been looking at corporate structure and, and, and had a decent one in place at that point, we, uh, we, well, I guess you could say a bowl down to me letting go, John, there was uh I've always had a delegation problem. So hmm. we said, uh, you know, you're, you're responsible for this, you're responsible for that. And we, uh, we put some things in place that has served us extremely well like from what? the time. Um, well, the, the, the biggest thing is having, uh, putting a COO in place and, uh, having, having people over, you know, sales and marketing and letting some of that go and giving people, giving people ownership of their uh, responsibilities in, um, you know, truly delegating, which is always hard, I think, for a small business owner that started uh, a company that was really, I mean, for so many years, uh, Word South was Stephen Smith and his support staff. And uh, getting to the place that, that um, the, the clients and prospects and industries you serve do not focus uh, their attention on you that, that they don't identify the company, you know, by you um, is uh, it, it, it's a hard place to move from. And so we, uh, we really started trying to move away from that and uh, put, put those employees out there and out front. And, uh, and it really served us well because from the time that we made those intentional efforts to the time we sold the business um, earlier this year, um, our business doubled. And, and and I think that that is uh, a lot of it has to do with the fact that we got serious about our corporate structure and, uh, you know, and, and, and really doubled down on that. Amazing. I've got so many questions ar- around that. So <laughs> you delegated and delegation is something we hear about in, you know, in, in business school and in theory and it, and it, and it sounds good, but to your point, it, it was difficult for you. What is the secret? What did you learn about effective delegation. What did you learn about what you were doing wrong and what you started to do as the correct way to delegate? Well, you, you have to say, uh, you have to stop saying, well, well, I can do that. I can do that better. Um, most of the time that's probably true. You know, as the owner, uh, you know, founder, you're, you're closer to the business, you're closer to the, you know, it's all in your head. You understand everything and how it should work. You have to get that out of your head. You have to you have to create those processes. You have to document those, and you have to. Uh, I mean, you have to get ownership of those. You can't let. Um, you know, you, you can't just create those uh, those processes and you know hand them down from on high and say this is how we're going to do things. You have to involve people in developing those. You have to give people. Uh, ownership of the process and ownership of uh, the outcome of the jobs that you've uh, delegated to them. 
how hold them responsible what, for that. I think a lot of people listening will be like, yeah, here we go. Process again. I know I've heard this. I read the e-myth. I got like, I know I got to do it, <laughs> but man, I don't know where to start. I don't know how to get it out of my head. Uh, short of ending up in the hospital, which nobody wants to do, obviously. Um, what advice <laughs> would you give someone who's struggling to figure out how to get it out of their head? Well, one, I would say get along and get quiet and uh, notebook and pad you know, not, not a computer, not your phone, just a notebook and, and, uh, uh, and a pen and you, uh, and think through how do I get from A to Z? How do I do this thing? And uh, write those steps out. But then the people that watch you do those things and who were involved in those, you need to get those involved, those people involved in that process too, because chances are you're going to say, well, here's how we do this thing. And we always do it. They're going to say, uh, a, well, you may think that's how you do it, Stephen, but you know, <laughs> it was how we did it, it back like in 1986. <laughs> right. Or this is how, uh, this is how it looks from the outside. Or, you know, if we would tweak a, B and C, it would make it a much, much smoother process and, you know, and get their input on it. Um, I was joking with, um, one of our uh, executive team the other day that, uh, I really like developing processes. I just don't like following them because I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a, a free spirit when it comes to that. And they're always, you, uh, you, you hear the, you hear the groans on staff when I'm involved in um, actually managing a project. They're like, don't we just need to turn that over to an account manager and you just kind of uh, consult there because uh, yeah, they, they, they do a great job. Our team uh, have, taking the processes systems that we've developed over time and, and running with those. Another thing you did was bring in a chief operating officer. What was that experience like for you? Well, he was already on staff. And so it was really just identifying someone that, that fit that mold so well and was already a leader in the company. And by that point, it was almost a matter of just giving him the title because he was, uh, he, he had really stepped up prior to the sickness. Of course, he's just, he was a leader, but, but you know, when, when I went into the hospital, he, he knew things had to happen. His name is Jared. Shout out there to Jared, but he's, uh, you know, he, he did a great job of just taking hold of what needed to happen and make sure things were continuing, you know, back at the office. And so. Was there a sense of, you know, for you and your wife that you were becoming too dependent on Jerry, particularly Jerry. when you were sick? I'm imagining that that might have felt a little uncomfortable. No, not not at all, because um, he had already proven himself, and and not just Jared, but other staff members, Carrie and Andy and Elizabeth and other people who who had already shown that they were um, that, that they could be trusted with the roles that we had, we had given them. So there was a great comfort level there. We just have a tremendous leadership team and, um, and noble can't forget noble. So there's uh, so we had a, 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 a great leadership team already in place that was doing a very good job. It was just a matter of, uh, well, a lot of it was just a matter of Steven saying, okay, go, go do your job and I'm going to stay out of the way. Yeah. I'd be curious to know how you chose, I'd be curious to know how you chose to compensate Jerry, not necessarily his salary, but sort of the structure of 
his deal? Because I think a lot of people hear the word COO or second in command and they wonder like, do I need to share equity? Uh, do we always have, you know, do we now have to have audited statements so that we can do profit sharing? Like what, what was your structure for compensating a COO? Oh, ours was very simple. Um, Jared was on salary before then and um, remained on salary uh, afterwards. We, we didn't do any kind of equity share or anything. Got it. Got it. And so Noah did like no, no, like no change to his comp effectively, even though he was taking on this broader responsibility or at least this bigger title. No change in structure. Yes. Got it. Got it. Okay. That's helpful. So when did this uh, shift from making the, it all about Steven to, you know, delegating and, you know, creating this business that could thrive without you. Why did that shift to wanting to sell the business? What was the trigger there? Well, bear in mind that um, for years, thinking about selling the business had, had been in the back of our minds. Um, admittedly, the back of my mind a lot stronger than, than my wife's. She's like, hmm. okay, it's one, one of those dreams he's, he's playing with. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an idea guy, always coming up with things. Um, but, but I felt like we were uh, building something of value and that one day we would be able to, to cash in on that, uh, on that sweat equity. So we had had some conversations, um, with, uh, within the last five years, we, we had a couple of conversations with, uh, two different organizations sort of thinking about what this would look like. They, they were partners, people that we, you know, worked with in the industry about, you know, are there some synergies here? Is there something worth talking about here? Just some early exploratory conversations that, that remained that. They didn't go, you know, much, much further than that. Just, uh, you know, looking at uh, exploring the what ifs, I guess. Um, and it's important to note that we never took the, we never took the business to market. Uh, that, that just wasn't an approach that was right for us. You know, we didn't, we didn't hire a broker and get out there and market the thing because we knew that uh, in order for an acquisition to be successful, that we, that we were going to stay on for a period of time for the stability of the company. And uh, even though we did a lot of delegation and put uh, clients out front, I mean, put employees out front, I mean, clients still knew me, of course, and the stability of us you know, being here so long as our company, um, an immediate exit after an acquisition, would not have been healthy for the company and would have created a lot of instability. So, you know, we, we knew that whoever we ended up uh, selling to, uh, there, there had to be a, had to be a lot of commonality in terms of mission and culture and, you know, business practices. And it had to be the right partner. Cause you weren't just going to drop off the keys and say, how about it? I'm out of here. <laughs> you Absolutely. knew you were going to stick around for a while. Absolutely. So where does it go from there? So it's in the back of your mind. You're having these sort of preliminary conversations. They don't go anywhere. When does it sort of go to the front burner? This would have been in, uh, let's see, it would have been in 2018 early, I believe. Um, we, uh, we, we met the CEO of a, a fairly recent CEO of a company in Oregon, uh, Pioneer Utility Resources, that uh, this company is actually very similar to us in terms of uh, they, they work in the same space, mainly with uh, 
you know, public power and electric cooperatives. They don't do any uh, broadband. Uh, the name sounds like a utility itself. It sounds like the, the gas company or something like that. They're really <laughs> pioneer utility resources. Right, right. What do they do? Uh, they publish. Uh, they publish a lot of magazines and also really? bring uh, social media uh, support to uh, electric cooperatives and their statewide associations. Mostly it's a great out west. Name. It's a great yeah. name because it, yeah. it feels so. I don't know, like part of the industry. <laughs> right. And they are actually a cooperative themselves. They were formed by, uh, back in like 60 years ago or so, they were formed by electric cooperatives out West who wanted a, a centralized uh, communications uh, s- support, you know, in terms of their statewide magazines and how they communicate with their end customers and members. What so. is a co- co-op? Like I've heard of co-op apartment buildings in New York. I've heard of co-ops, but in like farming, but what does that mean? A co-op? Oh, John, you're going to take us down a 30 minute road here. Um, no, no, please the, yeah. give, me the, give me the short, you know, the, the, just the uh, mountaintops. <laughs> no, the, the cooperative business model um, really, really changed rural America. It's, it provides a way for a community to come together and uh, form this company that is cooperative. They are members of that company in that they uh, take services from that company. So uh, then that company can uh, do business and um, they can borrow money, you know, from the federal government and create those services. It's a way for the community to create services for themselves that, that uh, private interests provide because it's just not profitable. Um, in our particular area, we are served both by a, a, an electric cooperative and a telecommunications cooperative. So, so they don't have a profit incentive or are they when, trying to make money? When you're looking at, um, when you're looking at an, an area of the country where let's say a, an, an investor owned utility can go to a, a large city and for every mile, of line that they build, they're going to pass 30, 50, 100, 300 customers. And then you get out into the rural area and that same mile of line that costs the same to construct, maybe even more depending on terrain, is only going to pass six, seven, eight customers. And that's all you have to to get the money from to, to pay for the thing. You, it, it's, it's not um, attractive to investors, of course, because, you know, the money's just not there. And the cooperative model is that uh, any margins that the company makes is returned to the membership in the form of what they call capital credits. So it's not immediately returned that year. It's usually like on a 30-year scale. But those, uh, those profits are just assigned back to the members. So it's really a form of business where the community can provide the services for themselves that an, an investor-owned company never would because the profits is not there. But it's got to be like herding cats with all these members and opinions and. Well, the, the members are involved. Uh, cooperatives uh, have an annual meeting. Uh, they have a process where the cooperative, uh, the cooperative members elect the board of directors to represent them. And, you know, that happens once a year. And those, those directors, you know, make all the, the, the policy decisions and those sorts of things. And I mean, they function as the board of directors would in a, you know, a traditional corporation and they hire an executive team that, that runs the company. So 
if you didn't know, you know, you walk into one of these here, uh, the electric cooperative or telecommunications cooperative that serves us, you walk into the office and, you know, you see the operation and then you look behind the scenes, you know, you don't see a lot of difference in terms of, you know, between that and a corporation, except it's all so very customer focused. Okay. Got it. That's helpful for sure. So, yeah. So tell me where this conversation goes. So you, you this company up in Oregon, um, when does it turn from polite conversation to acquisition conversation? Uh, the entire process, believe it or not, John, took about uh, two years, a little better. Um, mm. And so much of that was just, you know, getting to know one another and, hey, I'm traveling in, uh, traveling to a conference. Are you going to be at that one? Hey, maybe we can have dinner and, you know, those kind of things. And over time, it became so obvious that we had, um, we had similar missions, similar cultures, and it just made so much sense for us to go down that road and explore what could, uh, what could be possible if we were. Who made the together. first move? Oh, that's like asking, uh, asking that question to my wife and I, how did we end up married? Um, <laughs> um, there, uh, I, I, I can't really say, um, it, it just happened organically, which is another thing that, you know, really made us know that this made a whole lot of sense. What did they see strategically in you? You're in similar businesses, but you're in a different part of the country. What, like, why would they want to buy you, basically? Yeah, great question. Um, one, the, uh, the geographic uh, differences that, that you mentioned there. They operate, in the, for the most part, except for uh, some clients in South Carolina and Florida, for the most part, they operate in the, the western part of the country. We have no clients out there. So we have a strong base in the, uh, in the south and southeast. So geographically, uh, that made sense for them. But we're also, in addition to working with electric cooperatives like they do, um, we're heavily weighted in the telecommunications industry. And we, uh, you know, we do a lot of work in broadband marketing, uh, helping these companies uh, you know, market their services, in the, their, their broadband services. And um, it, it's an interesting thing, um, John, when we started the company, we were working in our very first client was an electric cooperative and uh, like our second or third client was a telecommunications cooperative. And of course that was before we had broadband. I mean, that was, I remember us building ads for that blazing fast 56 K uh, <laughs> internet that was coming out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, we've been in that a long time. And so we've been in both industries uh, for, uh, you know, all these years and we're really seeing, you know, uh, a confluence of those now because you have, in addition to the traditional incumbent telecommunications companies, a lot of electric cooperatives are getting into the broadband business now. And so, uh, you know, here we are with some expertise in both areas. And so as that continues, as that momentum continues in that direction, um, we were heavily versed in the broadband industry and they had little to none experience, uh, little to no experience in that. So we were also bringing that to the table. And another thing that made, uh, that made it make just a lot of sense was, again, I know I've said this before, but our, uh, our missions were very similar. Um, they've, uh, they've joked that uh, they're a communications company that is cooperative and WordSouth is a communications company that acts like a cooperative. 
Um, we, so we're very, you know, mission driven and, and uh, customer focused. Uh, and then our cultures, you know, we're, we're just very similar. So it just made, it's made sense in a lot of areas. Got it. So the, the fit feels right. What happens next? Do they present you with a letter of intent or do you guys talk numbers over dinner? Like how did the number stuff start to happen? Uh, yes, we, uh, we started, um, talking about what, uh, what those numbers might, ha- might, might look like. We, uh, you know, we, we, we signed NDAs and got some initial, uh, numbers to them. And, uh, you know, t- they took some time with that. And then we got back together with, uh, you know, what an initial offer might look like. And then, you know, we had a piece of verbal that. or was the, was that conversation verbal where they started to talk about what an initial offer might look like? I uh, know that was written. Written. And what was yep. your reaction to their first written sense of what it might be worth? Um, initial reaction was we are, uh, we're in the neighborhood, but we haven't found the address yet, but we've got a good framework and let's, uh, you know, let's, let's start building on it from there. In other words, you weren't totally satisfied with the number. What, how did you kind of get them up? Uh, this is, uh, this is an area, John, where I would highly recommend any business owner find, uh, an advisor that you can trust that has some, uh, M&A experience, even if it's not, uh, you know, directly involved in the, in the kind of business that you're in, if, if it's something, you know, similar and, um, and, and we certainly found that in, uh, a fellow named Rod Ballard. I'll, I'll give a shout out to him. He's with a, a, a accounting firm, Jackson Thornton, and they uh, they work in the same space that we we have a lot of clients similar. And so, you know, Rod understood and had been through a lot of uh, of M and A's, not with agencies, but with you know the telecommunications companies and things of that nature. And so uh, he was he was very familiar with the industries, but Rod brought so many things to the table and one of those being able to step back and say, okay, you've never really done, you know, as a small company, our, um, especially as a communications company, my wife and I both being creatives, you know, our, our financial approach was certainly not as advanced as, you know, we didn't have a CFO and, you know, we have a CPA that prepares the taxes and those kind of things, you know? And so, you know, that was certainly an area that we weren't just real advanced in. And Rod was able to take us through, you know, a, a discounted cash flow analysis and, uh, you know, doing projections and, uh, you know, sp- spreadsheets. Like I, I didn't know Excel could do all those things. And uh, I'll never, I'll never forget the day that uh, he and I sat down at their office in Nashville and we were going to go over some initial numbers and take a look at some things and build out some of these forecasts and uh i was thinking uh i was thinking we'd be there you know 30 minutes to an hour as he went through uh okay here's what i'm gonna do and we'll get back together next week and we were in his conference room with the uh, excel pulled up on a uh, big tv screen for five hours straight as we walked through um g- getting to a point that we were you know we were we were pretty close to having what we needed to go back with a with a counter offer. Uh, it was exhausting, but it was, uh, it was well worth it. Stephen, what is it that Rod is doing in Excel in that five hour meeting? Well, 
well, as a creative, you have to know that I've blocked most of that out now. So uh, <laughs> It's like women who have kids are like, I can't remember. <laughs> I have a kid now. I'm not, it just, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> you know what exactly. I meant? <laughs> um, well, the big thing was, was that analysis that, that I mentioned. The, uh, but what analysis is he doing? Is he doing forecasting or is he doing yes. analysis on your current forecasting? Yeah. God. Um, but I, but I tell you another thing that is, is vile. And I made a note to forget, uh, not, not to forget to tell the story is, uh, I pulled up a letter, uh, last night and, and read over it again and chuckled where early in the, uh, in the negotiations, very early, I, uh, I wrote the most ridiculous letter and was ready to, to, to send it to them. Um, where I was stating, okay, if we're going to move forward, we're going to need this and this and this. And, and, and here's, here's the facts about us. Now, these are things that we just want, I guess, is basically how it was, you know, ticking off. And for this to work, you know, these things are going to, have to be in place. And because um, there's so, so much emotion, I don't care how stable you are. When you get into selling something that is, you know, I mean, for us, our third child, you know, our, our business, uh, emotions are going to kick in. I sent that letter to Rod, and the next day he called me and he said, Wow, Stephen, um, that's pretty direct. You're just laying it all out there. And instead of saying, Stephen, delete that. Don't be an idiot. This is way too early to talk about this. He, uh, he just very gently talked me off the, talk, talk me off the, uh, the ledge there. And uh, that is the role. I mean, a good advisor can help you, you know, take those blinders off and can help you think straight. Because no matter how focused you are, no matter how uh, how you feel like you know it's it's not emotional and you're in control of them, emotions are going to going to kick in when you are selling your own business and something you started from the ground up. Would you mind sharing if you you, you characterize the letter as, as ridiculous and very direct in Rod's own vernacular? Would you mind sharing some of the things that you wrote that you were were going to ask for in the letter that you came to learn was perhaps too early in the conversation or too too direct. I will never share those things publicly. No. Um, <laughs> well, it's just things like um, um, maybe approach of uh, a structure of the deal and, you know, th- those kind of things. It was like hundred uh, percent cash up front. I don't want any earn out. Would, is that the kind of thing you'd, have you seen the letter? It's no, <laughs> but I'm guessing. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually one of the bullets, actually. Yeah. Yeah. 100% cash. Yeah. What else What else uh, would have been in the letter? Oh, that's, uh, that, that, that's enough of that. I can't remember. They uh, say 100% cash. And uh, I don't know. Uh, there, there were just other things that was, it was just way too early to just lay it out all, all on the line, you know. And I just tell that story to say, you know, that's just one ridiculous uh, example, but I'm sure there are many others through the process that Rod was able to help us, you know, take a breath, slow down, think through. That's just a vital, vital role. I would not walk through that process with, without someone like, like Rod at your side. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it's such a, I'm so glad you shared the story because the, uh, the temptation is, is to get, you know, okay, we're in a negotiation. I'm going to get my way and, and damn it. And, and, and you can really turn off a, a really fruitful conversation very early. Oh, There's yeah. a time and a place for those, those negotiations. But as Rod 
pointed out, it sounds like his advice was, well, let's, let's get the, the hook in the fish <laughs> before, we, right, right. before we pull too hard on the line. Got it. What else did Rod do that made this deal work? Um, I'm not sure how common this is, but uh, Rod was actually involved uh, up front with, with me in conversations with uh, the CEO and CFO of the acquiring company and was able to, you know, he took part in the negotiations, I, I, I guess you would, and I guess you'd say, and ask, you know, just a lot of good questions. And I mean, it just makes a world of difference when someone who's been through that M&A process you know, and like in his case on both sides of the deal, um, bringing that experience uh, to the table. What you kind know, of he, questions did Rod ask that you were like, oh man, I can't, that's such a good question. I've never thought to ask that. Um, there was one, one thing in particular um, when he was asking about maybe their, um, their plans for the company, um, uh, what they saw long-term. Let's see, there was one. Oh, in, in particular, he was asking about the, the uh, source of funds. Um, basically, if this deal, if this deal goes through, how are, how are you going to pay for it? And, uh, you know, I never would have thought to ask that. So that's, and, and that's just one example, but um, yeah, I would, I would highly advise anyone to, to seek out an advisor for sure. Yeah. I want to go back to the five hour Excel marathon. So he's <laughs> forecasting out your business into the future. And, and for what purpose, what, what is that, that he's doing that for? Well, I think there are, there are at least a couple of valuations that you can, uh, that you can think about for a small business that's looking um, at an acquisition there's um there's of course the value of the company today there's the value of what the company could be five years from now uh, on its own and then there's the value of what the company can be with the acquisition and that was certainly an, an important factor for us that we we needed to establish a foundation of what we could do and, and project out of, of, of what we could do together. Because if you're looking for, you know, in, in our case, you know, for, for us uh, in a business that we wanted to help continue to, to grow and prosper and be successful, we, we were looking for a strategic acquirer. And, um, and, and certainly a lot of small businesses, you know, uh, a strict financial acquisition is is not really realistic, uh, I guess. Um, but we were we were absolutely looking for a strategic acquirer because we wanted to see what we could accomplish together. We were looking for some synergies that we could build upon, scope and scale, and uh, and so naturally, when you're looking at evaluation for that, you you have to say what can we become together that will be much better than the sum of our parts. And so he really helped to, uh, to quantify that. Got it. So he's, he's looking at it and saying, okay, if, if it together, we can bring the, the joint resources together, how much big, bigger could word South be 
with the resources of Pioneer and vice versa. Right. Just painting a picture of what that, uh, what that marriage would look like. Yeah. 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 And, and again, I know we have to be careful about the actual number, but on a percentage basis, are you able to share sort of the, the improvement you were able to garner from the first initial discussion to the five hour Excel marathon to the, the kind of final deal? Like, did you get it up 10%, 50%, 100%? Like, can we talk at all about sort of how, how impactful that was? Um, it, it depends on which, um, which numbers we look at, but I would say that from the very beginnings of the conversation that we were, um, we, we, we were considerably higher. I would say 50% higher probably. Fantastic. And so how did you structure the deal? I know you wanted hundred percent cash. I'm guessing given <laughs> the fact that you're still there, it's not the way it was structured. What did you end up doing in the way of structure? Um, could some of those things fall under confidentiality, but I would, I would say this, think outside the box. You know, if, if a company's looking at an acquisition that, that makes sense, the, you know, the synergies are there, everything, you know, culture's there. It's a, that it's a partnership and you really need to look at it like a partnership and not a transaction. At least that was the case for us. Then um, think outside the box. You look at, okay, it's gotta be multiples of EBITDA. It's gotta be multiples of revenue. It's gotta, you know, fall in line with industry standards. Well, I mean, truth is it doesn't. Um, as we, we were talking before the tape rolled, you, um, you, you have a, a company is worth what it's worth to the acquirer. And so that valuation can be based on, you know, what, what we both see is the, the possibilities there and the structure can follow that. You can, you can develop a structure that is unconventional if it works in the particular situation. And that's what we were able to do. You know, if you were advising another entrepreneur, maybe in, in a service company that was considering signing up for an earnout, because obviously a lot of service company owners would love hundred percent cash up front, but that's just not reality. And so if you were advising another service-based owner who was considering an earnout offer, what what advice would you give them if they were thinking about signing up for an earnout? I heard someone on your show once, John, say that if you sign up for an earnout, you you better be prepared financially and mentally for what you got at closing to be all the money you would ever see. And um, the the problem that I I've always had with an earnout is that ultimately, and you're only going to do business with people that you, that you believe you can trust. But ultimately, you know, when you sign that document, you have no control over the financial performance of that company when it's no longer yours. You can have all the agreements in place, but there are mechanisms that, you know, if you, and again, you, you, you hope that you wouldn't do business with, with people that would take these tactics. But, you know, if you have a company say, well, you, you, know, you, you you missed your mark by ten thousand dollars, and uh, oh, you know we, we we increased you know management fees or you know whatever. Or we made these adjustments, or we you know we allocated these expenses you know differently or whatever. I mean they they can move those things around. They can they can impact that bottom line. And you have no control over that, 
And uh, certainly you can put up barriers where they couldn't be, you know, unscrupulous about it. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're, you're banking your, 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 your betting your payout on, you know, metrics that ultimately you have no control over. And uh, that, that's always been the, that's always been the problem that, I, that I've had with an earn out. And, and so how did you get comfortable with that? Um, well, again, some of this uh, falls under the confidentiality, but I will say that, that we were able to, why does a, why does an acquirer want an earn out? Because they don't want to put all the risk up front. They don't want to, um, they don't want to fully invest at hundred percent. They want to be able to, um, you know, spread that risk out. They want to be able to spread that cash flow out. You know, they buy them by themselves some time and they're, um, and, and then the, the, the seller, you know, they want to avoid an earn out because they don't want the risk of, you know, if we don't hit these metrics, I have no control over what happens, what they do and what happens to the economy. And I'm putting it all at risk. There are ways to accomplish both of those things without it being in the traditional earn out structure. Just get oh, creative. Outside the box. Teasing me, Steven. You're teasing me. I, I need to know, man. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, there are ways to accomplish that. <laughs> I'm really dying to know. So I'm killing you, aren't I? You are. You are. So ways to accomplishment, you could tie future performance to revenue as opposed to EBITDA. I guess that would be one way to do it. You could take shares in the co-op, I'm, I'm guessing, maybe. Although you're not a member. Right, right. Yeah. You're going to leave me hanging, Just, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Just think outside the box and, uh, and be creative is, is what I would say. Because ultimately, It sounds like call Rod, too. He sounds like he might have some ideas. Rod's good. Uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately, um, you know, well, how, how can we accomplish what both of us want to a degree? And, and I mean, isn't that the heart of the negotiation, you know, um, as a whole? I mean, you're, you're both trying to, to, to get the best deal. But so if it's a real partnership, you, you want everyone, you know, in a negotiation, they, they say if, if both parties are generally unhappy, you've got a pretty good deal. Uh, yeah. But you also want to be working with someone that really wants both parties to be relatively happy about it. If you intend to, you know, continue being involved. And, and I think that's probably the case with most service businesses. I mean, I know some that sold and walked away. But, uh, you know, for the most part in the service business, you're, you're going to have to, you know, continue to have some skin in the game at some point. So you want that and, relationship to be solid. And how did you insulate your relationship with the CEO of Pioneer so that the natural friction that comes with a negotiation did not impact your ability to work together? Yeah, you know, I don't think there's a, there's a secret or a trick there. It just depends on the personalities and the situation. Um, he and I found common ground. He's from a newspaper background. So am I, and, you know, moved into this work and uh, we, th that was just, that's, that was never an issue. 
does does that mean there were no tense moments? No, of course there were any, you know, negotiation, but uh, I was just, that was just never an issue because we both had the same, we both wanted it to work for the same reasons because we knew we had something special here. What was the most tense area of the negotiation? Hmm. That is a great question. Um, I don't know that I can point to just, just a single one, uh, John. It was, uh, like I say, there, I'm, I'm sure with some moments looking back, uh, you know, nothing comes to mind though. Um, I mean, always, you know, the value of the deal, you know, in general is always the biggest, uh, is the biggest uh, point of contention maybe, but, uh, it was a good process. What it did took you a do long to time. How long did it take? When we started having what I would say serious conversation about it, um, it took a, about a year, might be a little longer. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. What did you and your wife do to celebrate? Uh, well, um, the, uh, the deal closed uh, June 30. And 2020. We have, yes. So we're wow. still very fresh off of it. And so the integration with the companies is, uh, you know, immediately wrapped up going very, very quickly. So, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, getting away, taking some time off, that has not happened yet. So we're, uh, uh we're, we're, we're still looking forward to that. Uh, but in terms of, uh, you know, a, a reward and a trophy, we've talked about, um, well, I guess I could say that it came down to um, a Tesla for me or a swimming pool for the family. We had a family vote, so you know who won there. But uh, <laughs> no, no, I'm joking. Uh, but 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 seriously, we're, uh, we're we are planning a, a remodel in an outdoor uh, living space with a with a pool and you know doing that for the whole family. So we're that's going to be that. amazing, especially in Alabama where you guys get long hot summers. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. yeah. What was it like to tell your employees that you'd sold the business? Mm. We have a, we have a very tight knit culture in our company. Um, I know a lot of people say this and it almost sounds trite, but it's, but it's very real here that uh, our employees are really like family. I mean, we, we even being distributed and it seems like, well, that's, that'd be hard to, to maintain there. I don't really know how we accomplish that, but the closeness of our uh, employees has continued as we've grown from, you know, eight, 10, 20, 30 employees and scattered across several states. Um, so we knew this was going to be difficult. And so we had been planning long before, and that's one of the first things that Michelle and I started talking about was uh, how are we gonna tell the employees? So we had a plan that um, we were going to bring everyone in for um, a, an all-company meeting, uh, bring everyone into a central location, and that we were going to, uh, you know, we were going to just tell them the news and then work through all the emotions and work through, you know, just give them time to process, give them time to be together with one another to, you know, help each other process and, you know, have a whole day of it, take them to dinner and, you know, put them up overnight, you know, and just really, uh, really have some time to go through that. And of course, um, 
we were thinking that the close might happen as early as uh, February, March. And, um, and, and it did not. It took, took a little bit longer, you know, June 30, like I say. So by that time, all the travel restrictions for the pandemic and, uh, you know, we were, we were unable to do that. That was the hardest part for us in terms of um, just dealing with the employees. We weren't able to be with them. And so we had to do it all over a, a Zoom call. And uh, if, if I could change anything about this, the, the whole process, that would be it. I, I wish that we had the opportunity to be with them and tell them in person because, uh, you know, Zoom call is, you can only be so personal with that. So, so we had them all up on the Zoom. We, we shared the news and we, uh, you know, we, we, took a, we took a whole day with that uh, because we knew that the productivity would more or less be shot the rest of the day anyway. So uh, we let them break off into their teams after that and have some, discussions and discussions with our team leaders and we got back together that afternoon with just you know ask me anything session and uh, just give people time to process and talk and we did the best we could with it in a in a virtual environment what was the reaction uh, a lot of shock a lot of uh just concern you know we have uh we have a lot of folks on staff who are former uh, uh newspaper journalists and photographers and so you know if you keep up with what's happening in that industry it's uh, it's just a bloodletting and and we had to make sure that those people knew that the consolidation that they're seeing that's gutting newsrooms across the country that this was not that that this was a true integration and while you can't look at anyone uh, uh, when you're facing an acquisition and say you are safe. You will not lose your job. I mean, you, you can't say that as much as you want to, as much as you believe that, but you have to, uh, you know, just, just reassure them, especially those that come from that background. You know, we did that. Uh, this is not what you're seeing in the newspaper industry. I mean, we have folks here who are victims of that. And um, we, we, we just had to be very direct uh, about that. But it's gotten easier over time because, you know, we've continued to be busy and so many of our team members are interacting with team members of, uh, of Pioneer and they're seeing, you know, other, uh, you know, new fresh faces and new, new projects they can be working on. And so there's a real general excitement now. But that, you know, telling the employees was tough and I knew it would be, and, you know, a lot of tears and a lot of, uh, you know, just difficult moments. And was there resentment? Was there resentment? No, no, I don't, I don't think so. Um, we certainly didn't pick up on that, but, uh, and that, that never came through with any of the, the management team or anything. And that's uh, another thing that I will say is we told our management team in January, uh, we, we had everyone at, uh, we always do our, our famous word South after Christmas, Christmas party that happens <laughs> the first week in January to get out of the holiday season. So we had everyone together in January, thankfully, before the pandemic got so bad here. So, you know, we brought everyone in for a Christmas party. And then when all the employees left the next day, just, we rented a huge house on a lake and you know, brought in food and everything. It was, it's always our favorite time of the year, the employees. And so we we had the house the, the next day and had a, an offsite management team meeting. And uh, so we went ahead and shared with them 
uh, what we were looking at at that time thinking, you know, the next few weeks, maybe toward the end of, end of March, maybe might be, you know, a closing. Um, so that helped us, uh, uh, and understand that some small business owners can't do that for whatever reason, but for us, it made a lot of sense to share with those team leaders. We were able to walk through that process with them and, um, really see how they reacted and, uh, sort of walk through all the emotions and everything over the following days and weeks. And then they were in a very good place by the time we made the announcement. And that was so helpful because it wasn't just Michelle and me telling people and everyone reacting at the same time. Uh, the management team sort of went there with us. They had a very good feel for, uh, for the, uh, the, the deal, the, uh, the opportunities, the, uh, all the positives for it. And, when uh, when their team members came to them, they had already been where they where they were at that time, and so that was so helpful. We did not have to manage all of the you know the emotional fallout of the uh, of the announcement. So how, did you in, how do you, how did you ensure the management team kept it confidential? Well, the only thing you can do is, is say, you know, we trust you. Keep this confidential. And, and one thing that I, I did add is that we want to control this. Michelle and I want to control the messaging and the rollout. And, uh, you know, please give us that respect and give us that opportunity. And, of course, you know, we we trust completely the, the, those folks. We've got a great team. So they're there was never any concern that they were sharing outside of that group. And did you provide some sort of incentive for them to help you close the deal or keep it confidential? Um, no, not, uh, not, not directly. Of course they, they will benefit from being part of a larger organization, more career opportunities, more career mobility, more stability, blah, blah, blah. I would think there's all the, like there's lots in it for them beyond just sort of a, a paycheck. Uh, it sounds oh, like. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, the integrated, um, the new integrated org chart has all of our team members and, you know, leadership positions spread across the whole thing, all verticals. So it's, it's pretty exciting to see what, what kind of opportunity is going to open up for them. And for you, 90 days on, what are the emotions like for you? I know you're still in the company. Have you experienced any surprising emotions since selling? Well, I would say I have been caught off guard a time or two by um, my emotional reaction to something that was like, oh, that's not mine to worry about anymore. Like what? Uh, Oh, that happened, and uh, we did well. The, the uh, gosh, the coolest thing, John, is that this company has an amazing CFO who's so so sharp, so insightful, and having that resource that we've never had has been amazing. Hmm. Like insight into the numbers and what these things mean and how we need to be categorizing this it's just at a level that we've never been able to operate on and having that resource is and that and that was of course one of the things that we were looking for when we were looking for an acquirer 
someone who could shore up the areas that we were weak in. So that's been, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's been one of the most exciting things, just seeing things that we were never that's able great. to do before. Yeah. You, you mentioned that you were expecting to deal the close in February. It ultimately closed at the end of June, I believe, or in July. Yes. Mm-hmm. What made it uh, extend such a long period of time? What, what was the reason for the delay? Uh, well, uh, my, my February thought was probably too um, aggressive. Uh, it would have been more like, you know, March would have been more reasonable. But, you know, you had – there was no reason to rush things. And then, two when we got into the uh, – well, I guess any anyone that's going through the acquisition will tell you when the attorneys get involved, things take on a new dynamic. And, you know, starting to see those – pages and pages of uh, uh, of the agreement, you know, the proposed agreement and all the documentation that goes with that and walking through that with the attorneys, everything slowed down at that point. Mm-hmm. And that's something that uh, I, I knew that that would, I just didn't understand, you know, how, um, how, how dramatic that was going to be, I guess. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of, a lot of small details to work through. Yes, sir. There are indeed. Well, listen, I appreciate you sharing the story. Uh, congratulations to you, Michelle. I think it's fantastic news. And uh, I'm very grateful for you uh, taking the time to share the story with us. Well, it's been a delight to be on the program, John. You've, uh, you, do, you put out a lot of good work, a lot of good content out there. And I know you're a big help to a lot of small business owners. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. Thanks, Stephen. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.